Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Jack Hellman. Jack is a CPA with almost 20 years of public practice and professional tax experience. He is the director of Young Financial Group, a boutique accounting practice which he founded with the goal of providing professional and personalized tax and business advice to his clients. He is also a qualified mortgage broker and provides those services via his other company, YFG Lending. Jack, how are you, man? Amazing. How are you? Good. Thanks Thanks for for having me. Thanks for coming in. So today is an episode which is really, well, it's not really medically based. We're here to talk about accounting and finance. And so it's definitely not medically based. (laughs) No, but I think it's something that's really relevant to a lot of our listeners, especially those that are, that are medical professionals. You know, we've generally found um, that it's an area that most medical professionals tend to not have too much knowledge around when it comes to like tax, financial planning, all these sorts of things. It tends to be an area where most doctors and nurses sort of go, oh, too complicated. Correct. <laughs> T- too Didn't hard. do that in medical school. Yeah. Very timely point in year as well to yeah. uh, have this conversation. So, um, I mean, I was Jack, Jake and I were having a bit of a chat and we were, he had some accounting questions and my, my knowledge is, is gen- quite limited, but I guess probably a little bit more than the average lay person. And I thought this is something that would be a really interesting topic for our listeners because, you know, I'm sure Jake's not alone. It would be good to just do like a, like a 101 or crash course um, podcast on accounting and some hints and tips that people can use to sort of make the most of the money that they're earning. Yeah, definitely. And I, I guess a lot of injectors initially go out alone as well. So they've got no support, no one in the office to ask. Uh, I was in that situation. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of nurse injectors who I know are currently in that situation. And particularly with uh, what we're just emerging from the lockdown, it's really important to have your finances in order. And with the tax year ending in less than 30 days, it would be a good time to just sort of nut out some of that stuff yeah well people work so hard and you make you might as well try and keep as much of it in your pocket as you can obviously legally we don't want to do anything illegal but you know by all the legal avenues to try and maximize every dollar that you're making keep it keep it in your pocket so um jack well i always try to explain to my clients that when you come and have a chat to me this time of year i'm more like an emergency room doctor where (laughs) I, i can apply the paddles you know i can give you a shot of adrenaline or something like that whereas if you come to me after first First July, it's more like a funeral director. I'm like, <laughs> that. That was a, it was such a nice year. It did this, it did that, but it's finished now. You know? Yeah, so that's a great analogy. I like that. So you guys went to school together. Yeah, we did. Jack and I. We've. I think you came to Australia and joined tenth grade. Tenth grade, and we've yeah. been friends since then. So we've been out of school what twenty years. You're Something forty like now. That, yeah. I'm almost forty. Yeah, it's a long time. We've Scary when you think about the yeah, numbers. It goes fast. It does go fast. I still feel young. <laughs> sort of. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it depends if you look after yourself and you sort of try and stay healthy. Um, you know, it's crazy times at the moment. And people are all over the place. It's, uh, yeah. Anyway, so accounting 101. So, I mean, tell us a little bit about 
your practice. So the name of your business is the Young Financial Group. You're situated in William yeah, Street in yeah, Sydney. In William Street in the city, yeah. So um, close enough to the CBD um, that it's available by foot, but not close enough that you pay those huge rents. So Smart. I like it. And how long have you been there for? I've uh, been there for about 10 years now in okay. that office. and um, But I've been out on my own for more than that. And I, I started my practice after having worked in a few different chartered accounting firms and also in corporate tax at uh, quite a large multinational insurer. And it got to a point where um, I felt that a lot of the work that I was doing um, was very monotonous and didn't really see the value that it, it appears to the end user. Mm. And I find that being in private practice gives you that ability to actually see the impact that each decision um, and strategy does for the client. And for me, that, that makes doing accounting work, which is usually kind of dull, a little <laughs> bit more interesting. And I feel like I'm part of many different businesses. I feel like I'm part of a lot of medical practice practices, real estate agencies, you know, architects, plumbers, everything. So, what, um, Why did you fall into accountancy? Was it in the family or did you like maths at school? What, what, <laughs> what, I, I've never understood why people do. <laughs> uh, well, without, uh, without going for any of like the really cheap sort of uh, euphemisms about, you know, uh, <laughs> Um, is is one of those things where uh, I had an opportunity when I was much younger mm -hmm. um, to um, switch out of like working in um, what really is like a job that you can't make a career out of. It was in like a retail sort of environment. Mm. And um, someone had said to me that they had a really good chance for me to get started in accounting. And I was young enough and uh, that I was happy to take the hit on the income because it's you do take a few backward steps in life sometimes mm. to go forward. Um, but I can tell you that now that being in private practice has you don't look back after that. So yeah. that's a good moral. And where's your accent from? Um, You're not Australian. From, no, no, not not. I, well, I am sort of Australian. If you wanted to know how Australian I am, <laughs> I'm Australian enough to uh, to like rugby, but not enough to like cricket. So okay, <laughs> that's not good enough then. <laughs> it's, it's not a national sport, buddy. What's going on here? Well, the cricket's not happening at the moment. No, so, there's not a lot of anything uh, it's, happening it's, at the well, moment. The rugby seems to be the one, and the AFL that are going. So yeah, um, they seem to have gotten their act together a little bit faster. Yeah. But, um, Anyway, okay. uh, one of those things. So what sort of clients do you typically work with? Because I know that I ref like I've referred a lot of my nurses to you and I know you've sort of started to take care of a, a lot of medical professionals, but what's your sort of client mix typically look like? The, the key thing um, that uh, links pretty much all my clients is that they are in the personal services businesses. So they sell their time. So mm -hmm. whether they're a nurse injector, whether they're a GP, whether they're an architect, a lawyer, real estate agent, you know, plumber, um, they're basically selling their time. They're not selling a product. And as someone who also sells my time, it really helps me to, to understand them and their business a lot more. Um, and we can appreciate each other and the connection. So... I guess thinking from my point of view, when I first met an accountant and, you know, I moved country, so it, things were different again for me, as well as not being an accounting expert. But what's the sort of initial conversation you have with one of your, say, nurse injectors or doctors who, you know, they they know nothing? How, maybe we'll talk about the structures of, of how people represent themselves first and then, you know, you can sort of go into the detail from there. Yeah, that's um, probably a really good point to start. 
because depending on the structure that you engage with um, the people you provide the services to, that will determine a lot about the flexibility that you have for what you can do um, yeah. from a tax structure. And there's about five major ones that we tend to work with. And the simplest one is going to be the employee um relationship. So that's where you're paid a fixed amount per hour or um, per annum to provide these services um, on behalf of, let's say, a practice, a medical practice. And or like a hospital doctor. Yeah, they just a get hospital. a salary. Uh, they, they sort of get the tax already taken from their salary and away they go. Exactly. And it is the simplest because there's no major paperwork for you to do each week or each month. Um, the tax is withheld from you. And at the and the only compliance requirements that you really have are to do a tax return once a year. Yeah, and that's actually how my life ran for many, many years. I was a hospital doctor. I didn't know anything about being a sole trader or a, you know, a limited company. And so when I started, it was really difficult because I was like, hold on a minute. What's a what's a quarterly bass and, and all these other things unique to Australia? So, yeah. And, and how many of these principles are relatable to other countries? Because we've got listeners in other countries. Obviously, you can't talk about accounting law in, in all these countries. But are some of these principles similar globally or not so much? All right. And like you said, you pointed out already that um, I'm only licensed to provide tax advice in Australia. I even just wondered if you knew the American kind of uh, spin as well. Look, I mean, in, in America, the tax laws are um, quite different. They do have some similar structures. Um, so they will, I mean, obviously they're going to have companies there. They're not called um, proprietary limited. They're yeah. LLCs there. And you're able to trade via that um, mechanism as well. And then um, be an employee. So we're just skipping a little bit ahead of... Um, <laughs> no, that's uh, fine. I just want to acknowledge our American listeners. They're well, a big group. And they're very important to acknowledge. And then, <laughs> so, um, and hopefully they're, uh, they're doing all right during these uh, quite challenging times that Absolutely. they've got over there. Probably be a good time just to... Um, I know we, we do sort of a little bit of a disclaimer at the beginning of the podcast, but now it's probably a good time just to say <laughs> this is, uh, this is uh, a podcast. The information is, is general in nature. It's, it's there to sort of as an information education uh, purpose, but you should always talk to your uh, accounting, get your, your accountant yeah. professional or yeah. whoever, financial advisor, tax, uh, tax accountant. Um, on advice in your particular anything, situation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I so, like yeah. to kid myself that we're more entertainment <laughs> than education. <laughs> we're probably a hybrid. We're a bit of both. <laughs> we're a little bit of both. Well, you have to be able to laugh at yourself and, <laughs> exactly. and at the circumstances too. So, so sorry. So I, I sort of diverted you quite massively there. So you were saying that, you know, a, a hospital doctor or a GP who earns a salary is the, the most basic and maybe common structure, would you say? Yeah, well, it's more about the employee structure. And so the employee structure could apply to to some of your nurse injectors. Um, it could imply to like a hospital doctor or um, quite a number of other professionals. And the idea there is, is that they don't really have a lot of control about how the relationship works. Mm -hmm. um, their main, their main um, input is that they turn up and do what they are paid to do. Yeah. And that's really it. The, um, the business who they work for takes care of all the compliance obligations. They pay the insurances. They, um, they pay the rent. They, they do the whole lot. And really your key obligation is to turn up and do a good job. Yeah. 
Uh, and and I think that for a lot of people, um, they they may be able to go and, and work under a different structure, potentially even the next one, which might be a sole trader, but um, they just don't want the extra uh, workload that comes along with that or the extra responsibility. Yeah. And they just like to keep it simple and that's okay for some people. And if you don't have aspirations to be able to grow or you just like the peace of mind and the security to know, Hey, I have this job and, um, you know, I get my annual leave, I get my paid sick leave and that's it. Then yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. yeah. So I guess it's important to say that there's no sort of right or wrong answer. It just depends on what it is you're trying to achieve and what your particular working uh, scenario is it will depend on what's the most suitable structure for you. So that's part of your initial consult or discussion is understanding, hey, you know, where are you? Where do you want to be? What are your sort of financial goals? And then you're sort of tailoring a structure around those sorts of factors is would that oh, be right? 100%, yeah. yeah. And and I think the big thing really is that working for yourself, it sounds glorified, but it takes a lot of extra work. And I'm sure you'll know this, Dave, yeah. you mean you're up to all hours of the night and you're constantly thinking about it. And it's, it's like, and you think, how many patients do I have booked in the mm. next day? Yeah. Whereas when you're an employee, even though it, you probably should think about how many people are booked in for the next day, because eventually if there's not enough people booked in for a consistent period of time, you may lose your job, but you don't really think like that. You just think, okay, well, I go home at five o'clock or whatever time <laughs> it is and I can switch off. And You're thinking it's Monday, four more days till Friday and I don't have to see this place <laughs> for two more days. That's basically what most employees think. Pretty much. And, yeah. and, and there's like having, um, having that time and that ability to be able to to focus on other things is yep. a luxury for some people and um, mm -hmm. and if it works for them great and if it doesn't then um, you know there's other options so. presumably if you are a hospital doctor and let's say you're that's your career and you're not doing private practice so there's no other income you don't have the ability to change your structure do you generally not and I think also in a hospital environment um, it's very regulated because you're paid especially a public hospital you're paid by the state health service yeah. and uh, they will pretty much only engage you as an employee mm -hmm. okay. uh, some of the some of the hospital doctors may still have to have their own insurances on top of um, what the hospital provides or they may have to pay for some of their own uh, licensing fees or um, other expenditure but uh, generally in public systems you're going to be an employee and yeah. and that's pretty much it so their tax return is simple or relatively simple? It's more straightforward because you're just doing an individual tax return um, with the employee sections completed and a lot of that stuff is um, already provided for you by the employer. Yeah. So um, I know that there are plenty more structures, but just to pick you up on that term tax return, what, what does that actually mean? What happens? What do you need to do? When do you do it? <laughs> So you, at the end of each year, uh, you are required to lodge a income tax return. It's a document that gets submitted to the tax office, which details all the different income streams which you have. So whether that's employment income, interest from your savings in a bank account, dividends from shares, rent from rental properties, yeah. all forms of income included in this form and you submit to the tax office and then they will assess on how much tax is payable, usually as an employee, most yes. of the tax is already withheld from you. So the idea is, is that there's not, they're not trying to get it where you know you get a big refund or you have a big liability, they're trying to usually withhold just the right amount. Yep. And um, 
uh, obviously if you have a lot of deductions and we can move on to that a little bit later on in the, in the program, but, um, you'll be able to then, uh, recoup some of those expenses. Yes. Right. Perfect. <clears throat> so that the employee is, is basically your most, your most straightforward, most common structure. Um, it's safe. It, there's not too much to think about. You are limited, I guess, in terms of creative ways to sort of um, reduce your taxable income and so on and so forth. But that's what m- most people are sort of on out there in the workforce. You'd say it's probably like, I don't know what, 70 to 90% of people are probably in employee sort of situations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would be hard to put an exact percent of income here with the statistics yeah. on that. But <laughs> I Come can on, just, Jack, you should know this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, but really, the the a lot of people are employees. That's the majority yep. of the of the workforce out yep. there, yep. and it's designed that way for a reason because the business which employs them has ultimate control over, yep. um, you know, whether they deploy them and how much need yep. there is for them. Mm-hmm. So, but moving on from that, we we would look at sole traders. That's really the next step up in terms of the complexity of a tax structure. Mm -hmm. And what that means is it's still you as an individual performing a service. However, you don't have that employee relationship, employee-employer relationship with the um, service, with the people who provide the service or have the overheads there. And what will happen in that situation generally, um, let's say you're talking about a nurse injector who is a sole trader, they will um, have an ABN. An ABN is an Australian business number, and that is um, a number which all people and entities who are in business must, must have. They then create an invoice and will invoice the um, hospital or the clinic that they work on whatever agreement on basis that they have. They may also have a trading name which they work under and that trading name is the name that they may use to deal with the public. However, under underlying that trading name is still really them as an individual. And one of the key things to understand when you are a sole trader is, is that you... Um, you have unlimited liability. Mm-hmm. And what that means in simple terms is, is that um, if there is a problem, let's say um, you, as an, okay, let's talk about Don't it. look at me, Jack. <laughs> you screw up, you make a mistake, you do something bad. If, if as an injector, we talk about, um, and uh, you, you put the injection in and it damages the person and you, your insurance company, for whatever reason, hopefully you do have insurance, but if your insurance <laughs> company doesn't cover you, they can come after um, you. all your assets. Yeah, And that's obviously a big risk. And some people will, are not willing to accept that risk, especially if they... Um, if they have um, personal assets like a home or you know cars or investment properties, mm-hmm. so they will look for other structures to do that. Um, the other thing also with a sole trader is that all your all your profits are taxed in your personal name. Mm-hmm. And so for a lot of people as well, that's not a very um, attractive uh, scenario to have, especially if you're um, going to be earning um, a higher income. And 
you'll you'll be looking for some of these other opportunities, be that in a company structure or be that in a trust structure, yeah. um, to be able to conduct your business. Now, it's very important to point out that ch the choice of structure shouldn't be purely from a tax point of view. Uh, it may be an added side benefit, but there should be commercial reasons as to why you use a different structure. And the simplest reason about why you pick a structure and an easy one to explain to people can be that risk one that you know you prefer to trade as a company because you don't want the risk associated with being a sole trader yeah and just to give i guess listeners a, a real life example of how this may play out i mean you may have insurance for example um but for example i know then some of in in with some of my clinics if i fail to report something that could potentially become litigious or someone's going to sue us if you don't report that to the insurer, they may turn around and say, look, you didn't notify us, therefore we're not covering you. So even if you do have an insurance policy, if you drop the ball or something goes wrong with reporting insurance companies, typically they make money when they don't have to spend money. So if they can find a reason not to, and I'm not saying insurance companies go out to intentionally do this, that's not what I'm saying, but if there was a scenario where they had the ability not to pay you, cover you for insurance because you failed to report, then if you're in a private, like a sole trader type scenario, then you could become personally liable. So they could come after your house or whatever assets that you have. So it's not just about having insurance. Sometimes things happen and, and people drop the ball. Yeah, and it could be something as simple as that. You know, you're only licensed to use particular products and you didn't realize that. And you, even though it was in like good intention, you've gone and used a secondary product that wasn't covered by your insurer yeah, or well, by your licensing. Yeah. And therefore now the insurance company won't pay. Yeah. So yep. say you're over in your, your favorite conference overseas and you thought, oh, this fella looks great. I might just bring that back home with me. And then you inject someone that someone with it back here in Australia. I mean, I don't know. Don't do that. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure it happens. Especially not ones from China. Yes. Yes. No offense, China. No. <laughs> so that's sole trader. So so basically, is there anything else you wanted to cover cover with sole traders? That's that's really the main yeah. um, things. I should just quickly add that, like even in the sole trader situation, you do have the ability to employ individuals below that, yep. uh, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. Um, however, um, generally, what you will find is is that sole traders um, are operating on a much smaller scale. Mm -hmm. um, even as a sole trader, though, I would still encourage you to have separate bank accounts for your business income. And the reason for that is when you conduct your business activity, it's important to be able to identify what's in your business life and what's in your personal life. And if you have this account that's just for your business income and then you transfer to your personal account to let's say pay your foxtail or you know to pay for getting your hair done or something else then it makes the work for your accountant and even for you as like a business owner because you're still a business owner a lot easier to track because you're looking at one account that only has either business income or business expenses or just transfers to your personal account from a practical perspective and maybe you'll go on to this later but if you've done that very clean business account do you still have to keep thousands and thousands of receipts of things if you've got all of those transactions in in your bank account that that's a really good question jake and the answer to that is uh sometimes <laughs> or no, or, and, and yes but no <laughs> I, I personally i feel that it's important to keep most receipts, yes, even okay. if legally you're not required to keep them. Yeah, and we now move into 
a little nuance um, with sole trades because even with sole trades, you can have be a sole trader who's registered for GST, or you can be a sole trader who's not registered for GST. And what will generally determine whether or not you should register for GST is whether your turnover is more than $75,000 per annum. That's turnover, not profit. So if you're not even turning over $75,000 a year, that generally means you that- You shouldn't be an injector. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it just means that this is not your, for most people, it's probably not your your main focus because mm. if even if, let's say, you're running at a profit margin where yeah. you know your expenses are, are only, let's say, 10% of the business or something mm-hmm. like that, it, it, there's not much income there to yeah. be had. And for the amount of work and time and effort, I'd yeah. probably be saying to you, maybe consider just be an employee and get your paycheck and that's yeah. all. Yeah. Um, but back to the receipts, the, the from the tax office point of view, generally uh, receipts under $75, um, you're not gonna have to actually retain. Um, I will always be saying to you, especially if there's like a question mark about what that expense might be for, mm-hmm. then you should be keeping the receipt. And so to kind of give you an example about this, if you paid um, a supplier of medical equipment, uh, you know, $75 mm-hmm. and you don't keep the receipt, chances are is that that expense was something which could be deductible to you as a medical professional. Yeah. However, if let's say you went to David Jones and you spent $75 there, it's probably a good idea that you keep that receipt because um, that could just be you buying um, a piece of clothing for yourself um, or it could be that you went and bought um, like an organizer or like a like a, a memo book or something like that from David Jones, which could be deductible, or it could be that you purchased a gift voucher for a client. Sure. And then that could be deductible as well. So, so there's, you know, there are places where you buy stuff from that it's obviously for your work. Like if you buy a new laser, that's probably not for your personal use. And it probably will be a lot Apart more than $75 David, as David's well too. David's got two in so. his bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, there are apps now that can help people with that too. So it's not just about, you know, collecting the old shoebox um, full of receipts every year. You can do things now where you'd like take a photo of it with your phone and then it stores it in this app and then you can just, I mean, do you know? A hundred percent, yeah. And, and and the clients, thankfully, I don't have too many of them anymore. I'm so grateful for that. But, um, <laughs> uh, but the people like shouldn't really be needing to keep these receipts in paper format. Also, what happens is, is that a lot of the receipts these days are printed on thermal paper, which will fade over time, yeah. or if it's under um, on uh, on well, I the word yeah. like not not ideal conditions. Yeah. Um, so like under heat stress or things yeah. like that. If you that. put it in your wallet, it develops like it starts. If you it put it in your, your away, wallet, yeah. in your pocket, then all of a sudden, yeah. So some of the options for you, like, and I also would suggest to all my clients who are in business that they should use an accounting program to keep track of their business income and expenses. Our preference is for clients to use zero. There are other options um, such as MYOB or QuickBooks. Uh, we find that zero is very um, intuitive and especially for someone who's a non-accountant, it's easy for yeah. them to navigate, um, to navigate that exactly 100%. And zero has features where you can email the receipts to the program and then it stores it there for you. They also have arrangements with a company called HubDoc, um, which is like an add-on app. And then um, that will actually 
try to like use artificial intelligence to uh, read the receipt that you send to it and then pre-fill some of the information for That's you. That's amazing. It's called Hub, HubDoc. Yeah, HubDoc. Is that so. is like an app on your phone that you can it's, use? It's it's incorporated in Zero. Um, from my understanding, and again, yep. um, <laughs> I hope I don't sound silly when I say this, but I believe it was a standalone um, feature um, that. They had that's a company had created, and then Zero has taken it over and incorporated it into um, their service. Yes, cool. but there, there's even other companies who um, specialize in this, like Receipt Bank. And I know that there are some people in the LCA world who do use this, um, and that does pretty much what I was explaining before: that it uses artificial intelligence to read the receipt, figure out who the supplier is, what. Um, the expenses for and then try to pre-fill that into your system for you. Right. Okay. Do you know of any apps that people can download on their phone that are good for collecting receipts off the top of your head? Not off the top of my head. I really like I, I focus primarily on the the accounting programs and okay. um, and with Zero, which does have the app on your phone, uh, you're you able to, you can use that okay. and load it up. I can tell you that Receipt Bank has their app as well, and okay. um, and pretty much like all the big ones, MYOB, QuickBooks, they all have apps which you can then take photos of receipts with, load it up into the system, and it stores it there for you. And if you work for any of those companies and are listening, you can sponsor us. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Zero. <laughs> um, so that so we, okay. So we've covered um, employee and sole trader. So what's what's the next step? We're looking like a proprietary limited or something. Yeah, if yeah. we're if we're moving up from there, you're generally going to go to a company um, structure to conduct your business that way, and setting up a company um, is going to incur costs for a setup. Um, as opposed to a sole trader, which can effectively be done for virtually you know, no major um, expense. It also means that now you're dealing with a separate legal entity. And a lot of people um, don't realize this, and some people do realize it, but then disregard that anyhow, and that defeats part of the purpose. So the company is separate from you as the service provider. Generally, like if you have a company, David, you'll probably be an employee of that yeah. company as well. And you will you will have your existing personal tax file number and ABN if you had one, and the company will have its own tax file number, ABN. And the company will be required to lodge a tax return each year as will you be required to lodge a tax return. And the whole idea behind a company is that you have this limited liability, which is very attractive for a lot of people because they have a lot of personal assets, or especially even if you don't have a lot of personal assets, you might want to keep whatever little <laughs> bit you have and not put it at risk. And then there's also the ability for this company to um, retain profits and pay tax on those retained profits at a company tax rate, which is generally 27.5% for smaller companies that we deal with. It could be 30, depending on the size of your business. And when when you're in that situation there, um, you also have the ability to get investment into your company. And, and this concept, a lot of people don't think about it, but once you hear it out loud, it makes a lot of sense. It's like if you have a business as a sole trader and you want to bring someone on board, you can't bring them into a sole trader environment as a partner. 
it doesn't work like that. I mean, you can start a partnership, but that's just effectively two sole traders. Hmm. Whereas in a company situation, you have shares in the company. And so if Jake and Dave, you guys want to start a company together, you can each put in money and then you have a defined interest being your shares in that company. Mm -hmm. And that way you can, um, you know, sell those shares to other people or pass it along. It, it makes it a lot easier, especially when you're dealing with um, multiple people in yeah, a right. business situation. Yeah. So in terms of how that, that works, so say if you're, you know, let's just say um, if Jake was setting up a company, so Jake would set up, um, you know, whatever it is, Sloan, ABC, yeah. Yeah, Sloan Proprietary Limited, for example, mm -hmm. um, and that company would, that, that, that entity would then have a relationship with all of its customers and then Jake as a, as a, as a person would be an employee of, of Sloan Proprietary Limited and then that company would pay him a salary. That's correct. That's normally what we would be uh, recommending to our clients um, in terms of how they're structured and how they as the individual, so let's say we're talking about Jake for a second, how he fits within his company structure. And the only other thing that I would just add to what you were saying before, David, is that sometimes in the relationship, um, this company, let's just call it, you know, Sloan Proprietary Limited for the moment, will invoice the person who's receiving the injection. And sometimes it will invoice the clinic, which um, provides the infrastructure where those people go to. So let's, yeah. you know, without mentioning any particular chains or yeah. things like that, they may invoice um, that clinic um, as based on however many clients they've treated or yeah. given injections well, to. That's okay. I mean, we can, I mean, you know, Jake works at one of my clinics. So once a month, he'll send me an invoice from his company um, and I pay that company. And then whatever Jake's company decides to do with that money, whether it's invested in whatever or pay him a salary, that's, that's sort of between Jake and his company. But th that entity will just invoice my entity and then that, that, that's that relationship. And that's our sort of, that's where it's over to him then to decide what he does and how he moves that income around. That's correct. Mm -hmm. And, um, the, the idea also in this um, situation here is that there's a lot of factors at play. Um, paying a salary, let's say to Jake, helps um, for quite a few different things from like tax compliance obligations um, in terms of addressing personal services income uh, rules, but even something that you may not think about like in terms of your mortgage, um, when you have a company structure, you can draw out money really in two main ways um, if you're a director uh, who's also an employee. You can either take it as a wage or some sort of director's fees or bonus, or you can get a dividend. And when you go for finance applications, they will be looking more favorably upon wage income as opposed to dividend or other forms of um, profit distributions because what they're seeing there is is that the the wages are an, an ongoing expense of the business, something that's recurring and that's in the ordinary course, whereas dividends will generally be uh, more variable mm -hmm. and um, because they rely on the actual underlying profit of the business rather than the the services that are being provided. Can you clarify what is a dividend exactly? A dividend is a share of profit from a company. So it's just a discretionary um, amount of money that you could use what you like with, really? Uh, not exactly. So <laughs> okay, okay. Not, not Glad exactly. I'm in this podcast. Sorry. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> you are the weakest link. Goodbye. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. So what happens is is that uh, a company will um, 
earn income, it will pay its expenses, and then it's left with profit. Yes. And a company may or may not decide to pay a dividend from that retained profit. It doesn't have to. So if the directors decide that they want to pay a dividend, mm -hmm. they're able to do so. They can choose how much that dividend is, um, but it's it needs to be paid equally to all shareholders. So if you have 100 shareholders then and you have $100 profit, you could pay... Um, a dollar per share, yes. or you could pay 50 cents per share, but you can't say, well, this shareholder gets, yeah. um, do you know, a dollar per share, and this one only gets 50 cents per share. So in my head, I'm now going to call it an equal bonus to the shareholders. That's that's probably a, yeah. a simpler way cool. to put it. Yeah. There we go. So, so I mean, <clears throat> in terms of how that how this would look in a real life scenario, and just to sort of maybe give people an idea to sort of in why this is a good idea. So and correct me if I'm wrong, Jack. So, so basically, if you, if for example, going back to Jake's example, where he's got Sloan Proprietary Limited and in, invoices me for say ten thousand dollars for the month, or what, pick a figure out of the air, fifty thousand dollars more than that, yeah. <laughs> whatever it is. <laughs> so that money then gets paid to Jake's company, so Sloan Proprietary Limited. And I guess what we're looking at is, so if you're talking about um, being a high salary earner, where you're earning like one hundred, two hundred thousand dollars a year, whatever it is, you'd be in a very high tax bracket. So, whereas if you can try and retain that money in the company and then pay himself a lower amount of money, no, Am I, I've got it all wrong. No, no, no. <laughs> this is like I understand, and your your thought process on yes. on the approach is what many people think about. Okay, when they um, when they're looking at a company structure. Yeah, and I think that I mentioned this a little bit earlier in the podcast that your decisions need to be made based on um, commercial yes. um, reasons and not just on tax outcomes. Yeah. As nice as the tax outcome <laughs> might be, um, that shouldn't be your primary um, yep. factor for making the decisions. Yep. But I'll just carry on from what you were talking about there. Yep. So if, you have a, if you're a medical professional yep. who's invoicing, you know, let's say that clinic that they work for yes. and they're bringing in $50,000 a month, they may not, they're receiving $600,000 for the year mm -hmm. and um, they may not want that whole $600,000 to go to themselves as a salary. Right. And what we would be looking at there is what is a fair salary, um, a fair market value salary for the services that um, you're providing as a um, right. as a medical professional and we'd look to make sure that you're at least getting paid that salary. The other thing also to keep in mind too is, is that when you have a company, even if you're getting this $50,000 a month in income, there are a lot of other expenses that the company has um, to operate, which you know mean that not that entire $600,000 is available to go as a wage to right. the person. Yes. And the other thing um, to also add to that as well is that you have to really be mindful that you are an employee of that company. There is that um, separate legal entity and there is that distinction. And I touched on this earlier. It's really important to maintain that distinction between the two so you don't blur the lines. Because if you treat your company, like if let's say Jake has his company Sloan Proprietary Limited and he treats it like you know, one of his personal bank accounts and, um, you know, is paying for his haircuts and, you know, all his other personal expenses straight out of there. And then he runs into a problem down the road with a client where they're trying to sue his company as the service provider. 
there's a possibility that they could wind back the corporate veil and say, look, you know, this is not really a company structure. This mm. is just, you know, Jake operating with the name Sloan Proprietary Limited. So we want to make sure that everything is done very clean, very kosher, and that there is that distinction where the 600000 comes in, the GST is paid to the tax office. We pay super on whatever your salary is. We make sure you have workers' compensation insurance. We go through all the different steps. Yeah. And I think that when a lot of your listeners might hear this, they go, wow, you know, even just those few things, they're like, oh, this is too much. Do you know how, like, I don't want, that's all I'm and that's why, <laughs> and that's why they have people like us, um, on board with them to be able to make this whole process a lot simpler, a lot smoother, and and really just to be that you can focus on doing what you do best, which is making people look great, mm -hmm. um, better than they were looked when they were born, um, or that they were naturally, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, better than what genetics sort of helped them to to be like, <laughs> and um, and then we can take care of this side of it for you, so you can focus yeah. on what you do well. Yeah, it's still a good idea though for people to have a general idea about what they're what they're doing because you know it's you don't want to be completely ignorant to the fact. I wouldn't think you sort of not have a, a limited understanding would be good yeah that's that's very true as well yeah. and we much prefer to deal with clients who are informed and engaged in the process rather yeah. than clients who just throw up their hands and go you know what we don't want anything to do with this and and you just take on all the work because mm -hmm. uh especially like you know in company situations as a director you have certain legal responsibilities to yeah. sign off on and we want to make sure that you're educated enough and in uh, what those responsibilities are and what the documents that you're signing mean mm. so you feel comfortable to be able to sign those things there yeah can i also get you just to briefly bullet point gst and super for those people who may be new to you know working or whatever sure so um gst goods and services tax it's um levied at a rate of 10 percent and what that means is if you're providing a service which is subject to GST, and let's just talk about um, injectables for the moment as an example, because some services are GST free, but we're talking about injectables now and that um, is subject to GST. So if let's say you've done your business modeling and you feel that you would charge $50 per unit um, for this injection, and that will help you achieve your profit margin. You would need to charge the customer $55, mm -hmm. um, for that injection. That extra $5 is the GST component. And then that is, um, paid to the tax office. So in essence, you're an unpaid tax collector for the government. So what is that actually going towards? What, you know, what, what what's the value of it and, and why are they collecting that? They're collecting... Because um, they're greedy. They <laughs> it's like a tax on a tax because you're going to be paying your tax at the end of the year as well. Well, there's two separate things. So the whole idea behind goods and services taxes is a broad-based tax and it's to try to, um, to collect, like to, I guess, clip the ticket, so to speak, um, at a primary, at a prima facie levy, mm -hmm. um, prima facie level. Um, so that way they, they get, um, tax on the point of they, service. I guess. Yes, that's right. Because what happens is, is that as an individual, you only pay income tax on your profit. And there are many legitimate ways to make sure that your profit could be zero, in which case then the government would get no, no tax, tax there. Okay. So what they're, you know, and also to try to help avoid, you know, cash economies, but GST, like we're at, 
we're not here today to really talk about <laughs> what the GST is spent on because it's split out between the different states and they have percentages about who gets what. And sure, sure. I mean, this is now getting into a more like um, <laughs> national uh, budget. Na- yeah, national budget yeah. sort of it political. Gets paid for politicians to travel on business class. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it goes to, yes. Okay, so that's GST and so, then but, super. But the, the, the real thing from GST yeah. and, and, and like all jokes aside is, is yeah. that you really are in no, no word of a law, you're an unpaid tax collector for the government. And when you collect the GST from providing a service, um, you put that aside and, or you should be putting it aside because you'll need to remit that back to the government each um, quarter generally for most people. And that's called your BAS. And that's yeah. in your business activity statement, which yeah. is your BAS. That's correct. You can also offset that against the GST that you have um, outlaid. So really simple example, you have, you know, your $55 injection that you're providing to the customer. And then let's say you've bought a ten eleven dollar notebook. So you're you have fifty five sorry, you have your five dollars of GST that you've collected, you have the one dollar of GST that you've paid, and so then you give the four dollars to the government. Yes. Right. Okay. Good. And then you were talking about the superannuation and um, their superannuation guarantee is a legal obligation for companies who pay their employees more than $450 a month. Um, So that is irrespective of whether you're casual, full-time, part-time, whatever. Um, If your employee receives more than $450 a month, you need to pay them superannuation, which is nine and a half percent of the ordinary time earnings mm-hmm. and so that need you need to factor that into your um to your budget as well because a couple of things you also like when you go out on your own uh it's it's very it, it's a very exciting time for you and and you have a lot that you're thinking about and you're there because you want to be a success and, and you're not doing it because this is like um, a fallback option. You're doing it because you're someone who's on the front foot and trying to really make something for yourself. And you don't want to then try to avoid paying super, which you otherwise would have received as an employee and then find that you've, you're behind your peers because they've been getting nine and a half percent of whatever they've paid going into a super fund. And, you know, you've sort of conveniently forgotten to kind of pay that. So, and I, and that's one of the other things I like about having clients running with the companies too, is that now they're legally required to pay themselves the superannuation and, and that helps them for their future. I mean, if you're forced to put that money away and, uh, Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I know we're not going to talk too much about superannuation today, but there are you know there are avenues to use super these days. You don't have to wait until you're 65. I mean, there are avenues, and obviously we can talk about this at another podcast. But there, are, you don't just have to wait until you reach that age. There are things that you can do, tax strategies and ways you can invest with your super before you reach 65. Yeah, so, there's 100 um, yeah. ways to do that, and um, yeah, definitely for another podcast, not for today's yeah. session. Yeah. Um, but the the main thing. To, for people to understand out there is is that even though for most people you're not going to really access your super till you're about 60 years old uh, this is um, a tax effective opportunity for you as well because um, your super when it's paid into the super fund and all superannuation contributions need to go to a regulated um, superannuation fund that is taxed at 15% and so if you're 
paying that into the super fund and getting a deduction at a 30% tax rate, but then only having to pay 15 cents on the way in, you've just made 15 cents on all the dollars that have gone into your super. But that's capped at 25 grand a year. There is a limit on how much super that's correct. Um, I'm glad to see that you, uh, oh, you're up to speed on this. reading up for this, don't you worry. <laughs> uh, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, so it is 25,000 a year as a um, deductible contribution into your superannuation. Uh, all I'll just say quickly is, is that there are non-deductible or non-concessional contributions which you can make, and that's generally at $100,000 a year for most people. But the things that, the one that most people think about on a day-to-day basis is the deductible one, and that is 25000 a year. Okay. Right. And, and the purpose of the super, although David said you can use it in other ways, is to really have some sort of fund for when you're older to live off. Yeah, nest egg. Yeah. That's correct. It is It is to kind of have for when you do retire, so you're not as reliant on the public system um, as you know you would be if you had like no superannuation. Yeah. So what's it cost to set up a like a, a proprietary limited company? What what are we sort of looking at in terms of setup costs? So there's a few components to the setup costs, and um, it depends on obviously the complexity of what you're trying to achieve over there. But for a basic proprietary limited company, there's usually three components to the cost. You're going to have ASIC fees. Uh, that's the Australian Securities Investments Commission um, to actually get the company registered. There's corporate secretarial fees uh, for getting a lot of the company constitutions and other formation documents done. And then there's our professional fees, which come along with that. And a ballpark figure to set up a proprietary limited company all in, you're probably looking at around the $2,000 mark okay. um, to get that set up. And when we set that up on your behalf, that will generally include um, getting you ABNs, tax file numbers, GST registrations for your company, and then um, uh, having everything provided to you in a very simple, easy to understand package. So all you just have to do is sit there and sign some documents and you're away to go. Okay. Can I ask, um, you said um, once you've got a proprietary limited company that you, the company and the employee both submit tax returns. So for the employee, uh, are you just submitting, you know, your income, your wage and, and all of those sort of things? So assuming that that's the only income that you receive as the individual. So again, we just, you know, use a pretend Jake Sloan example. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so if you have your Sloan proprietary limited business and that's where pretty much all the expenses of the business are uh, are taken care of, and mm-hmm. then you're just paid a wage. Yes, your personal tax return will simply just be as if you were a regular employee, which we talked about earlier on in the piece, yeah. and just shows your wage, so and that's it. Quite simple, generally speaking. It is. So you're not having to do two complex tax returns. You're really doing one um, business return for the company, and then an employee return for yourself as the individual. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. So. Trusts. So, yes. yeah, the next step that <laughs> yeah. we go up from from here um, in terms of the complexity levels of how the business can operate is where we'll ha- input a trust structure into place. And I mentioned previously about how with dividends to shareholders, they need to be paid on an equal basis. With a trust, it has a list of eligible beneficiaries. And they, and again, just to be clear, we're talking about a discretionary trust, not a a unit trust. So I'll just quickly explain that. A unit trust is more similar to a company because 
people have a fixed entitlement. They have a particular number of units which they hold, and then any profit needs to be paid out on that unit basis, that unit entitlement basis. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about discretionary trusts, which, um, as the word (laughs) describes, relies a lot on the discretion of whoever is the trustee of that trust. And they are able to pay out the profits as they see fit. And so that means if I have five different beneficiaries in my trust, um, I can give each one a different amount of money because that's what I felt like this year. Shall we and use the Sloan Trust as an example? And, yeah, as long and, as I'm one ex- of the beneficiaries. Yeah. Let's <laughs> use that example. <laughs> so, so I've got... So what would it be called, Sloan? Well, let's just say you have Sloan Trust and then you operate your business as Sloan Trust. Mm -hmm. What can happen there is that you look at the end of the year, you have, let's say, 100,000 in profits and you can divvy that up in any which way you you see fit to people who are eligible beneficiaries of your trusts. In order for someone to be um, an eligible beneficiary generally for like most um, discretionary trust deeds, it will run along a family line. Mm-hmm. So it will be either a grandparent, a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a child, or a grandchild mm-hmm. of people who are named as beneficiaries. So if you've set this up and you've only named yourself as a beneficiary of the trust, then those will be the people who um, can be eligible beneficiaries. They're not entitled to anything. If you don't like them, if you like, some people have very, <laughs> yeah. um, very, yeah. Un, you know. Yeah, if they buy you socks for Christmas, no, 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 no trust no, distribution no, for you. No That's trust it. for you this year. That's it, exactly. <laughs> and, um, and, and just because someone meets the criteria, again, it, they don't have to receive anything and they're not entitled to claim anything. So it's it's important to keep that in mind because there are people who have relationship dynamics in their families where they don't want them to have any part of it. And so I'm just at pains to sort of you know stress that, that you don't have to give to these people. And just because you've given them in the past doesn't mean you have to give them in the future. Yeah. So how does that work um, logistically? It's a once-off payment once a year, or are they sort of earning a You're wage able, through the company? Well, this is not a wage. This is really... Wage denotes a business activity where they are um, performing a service mm-hmm. and you are remunerating them at what is a fair market value for sure. that service. And the idea behind this is that um, you could have a spouse who, let's say... Um, stays at home and does a valuable job of looking after the children or, yeah. or whatever else it is that they like to do or, you know, going know out she and likes doing, it, doing she Pilates and yoga wife. and stuff like that all day, but <laughs> yeah. that's fine. And you're able to go and make a distribution to them for whatever amount you see fit from the profits. So, so you can't drip feed that every month. It has to be a once yearly. No, no, no. You can you can feed this through whenever you want. But the key thing is, is that it's not a it's not a wage. So it could be change. Every... It's a profit. It's it's a profit distribution. Yeah. So as long as you know what your profit is, then you can certainly go and and hand out part of that profit midway through the year yes. or at any point during the year. Yeah. I'm just saying that it's really a profit and generally how a trust will make its distribution will generally be more towards the end of the year because then you you can actually know for sure that that's what your profit is yes because just because you you might your business might be up at december but then by the time june rolls around of course it could have been coronavirus yeah. and now business has fallen off so yeah. Yeah. Um, profits have gone through the floor 
Now, people that are receiving these um, payments through the trust, do they have to pay tax on that income? Yes. So, okay. it, as a um, as a beneficiary of the trust, you will certainly pay tax on whatever distribution that you receive, depending on how your um, how that trust is set up, which you have received a distribution from. There may be some tax which has already been prepaid um, at the business level. Mm. You will then get credit for that. Um, but you, as yes, as an individual, you need okay. to pay tax on all amounts received. So just to give put that into an example context. So if you normally pay, say, forty cents in the dollar, for example, and then you get. Um, a distribution and that's already been taxed, say, at 30% at a company level, then you as the person receiving that money would have to pay 10%. That's correct, yes. Right, so okay. you pay the difference and, and that's the idea. So no one's no one's missing out and being disadvantaged here. Yep. Um, you just pay the difference between whatever tax has been paid and your marginal rate of tax. And if, let's say, your marginal rate of tax is less than um, 30%, then you could actually get a refund. I'm trying to understand why you would set up as a trust versus the company. So what Are they together? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'll let you explain. No, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, um, what you will generally see there is that um, depending on what your personal circumstances are and what your, your goals are in life, we may suggest um, either a company, a trust, or both. Okay. And... Uh, when you uh, when you have a trust structure built into um, your business structure, it gives you a lot more flexibility. Mm -hmm. And what w most of our clients have gotten to the place that they are at in life by working hard and by being savvy, and they don't like to be limited or restricted. And with a shareholding structure in a company. You can only pay out profits to people who are shareholders, yep. and only on the per, on the basis of how many shares they have. Mm -hmm. Now, this gives you the flexibility to be able to pay to somebody else on a one-off basis, or even on a regular basis, but on different amounts. So, no fixed entitlement. Yeah, and. I think that provides a lot of opportunity for you as a business owner to be able to go and. Um, um, and really just have the control that you're looking for over. And this is what it's about, a lot of um, control. Yeah. Okay. And you said that the, the trustees tend to be through the bloodline. Uh, of, no, that's say, the beneficiaries. Sorry, um, sorry Generally will be through the bloodline, yeah. So let's say you're, you're putting money into your three-year-old's uh, account or whatever you want <laughs> okay. to call it. Who controls that money? Uh, well... <laughs> Let's let's split the. You're talking about two different topics here, Jake. Okay. And let's let's just be clear. We'll we'll address them separately. Okay. So you are able to give to your three year old if that's what you want to do. However, yes. the tax office has special rules in place to try to catch out people who are distributing money to their minor children. So mm -hmm. that's um, basically dependent children under sixteen. Yeah. And they put penalty rates on tax if you give them a distribution oh, because okay. there are people who will go and say, okay, well, I have um, $100,000 of profit. I have my wife and three kids. I'm going to give them each 25 grand in, in distributions because if let's say I just gave the whole hundred to my wife, she would pay about $25,000 in tax mm -hmm. as an individual. Whereas when you split that, 
um, hundred four ways, there's virtually no tax payable by those people, assuming that they have no other taxable income. Yes. So that's the distribution part of it. Um, if you were referencing who controls the money that goes into that account, well, if it's your minor child, then obviously you're controlling that. Yeah. And again, that's why they put these penalty rates in place because they recognize that even though you're saying I'm giving it to little Johnny, <laughs> effectively, you know, you're giving it to yourself. So, but well, I'm not well, here to talk. that was my question because I was thinking, I'm purely thinking of a dad here, not, not tax evasion. <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, if, if you had a trust set up and you drip fed however many a year or a month into your kid's account, that could eventually become college fees or whatever. It, it could. And, um, and you, could, you could do with that money, you know, effectively as, as you see fit as the guardian of that person. You, what you're going to then start to run into are other issues which become legal um, factors as, the, as that child gets older. And especially once they turn 18 and then... They can do what they like with it. And then could potentially do what they like with that money. And um, I think that for the purposes of trying to have like a more 101 type of um, uh, podcast <laughs> for your listeners, this is well and truly outside 101. <laughs> and I think that there's probably a few other things that are timely that we sort of talk about today, especially yep. um, no given that we, we only have a limited amount of time and also that June 30 is coming up in, um, <laughs> in a couple Settle of weeks. Down, Jake. Settle so, down. I'll, I'll stop my life planning. <laughs> Sorry. So do we uh, want to cover personal services income yeah, just we, quickly? So that's the, what's referred to as PSI, or personal services income. And I know that some people run into a little bit of trouble on trying to understand what that concept is. So could you break that down for us? Sure, no problems. Um, so we've mentioned this a little bit earlier, personal services income. It's a big focus of the tax office as a measure for compliance in people who provide their services for remuneration. So whether you are a cosmetic injector, whether you're a plumber, you're still selling your time. And what people are paying you for is for your personal exertion. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens in these scenarios is they have special rules to disallow your ability to be able to split that income amongst other people via a trust or to retain that income in the company at company tax rates because they deem that even though there might be a legitimate reason why you operate via a company, so let's say for the limited liability um, reasons, they say, that's okay, Jake. That's a good reason why you should have a company. However, when it comes to a tax uh, return at the end of the year, we still want to collect our tax from you as if that was going to you entirely as an individual. Mm-hmm. And what happens there is that they, they put these rules in place. And if you get captured under this legislation, you pretty much need to pay all profits to the person who's um, provided the services. Um, so that way it's taxed at an individual level there. You can still have your legitimate business expenses, but any profits will go there and you can't retain those profits in the company at the company tax rates. Now, the interpretation of this um, is where the value of having an accountant who understands um, your industry 
and who deals with this on a more regular basis comes into play. And I've seen examples in the past where people have been given advice that they are captured under the personal services income legislation and that they can't really go and um, pay a wage to someone else or pay a, a dividend to someone who would ordinarily be eligible to receive that. Mm -hmm. And it's come down to where their advisor at the time didn't fully understand how their business was operating and um, and their ability to, in fact, not be captured by this legislation because PSI or PSB, which is just personal services, personal services business income, um, does restrict your flexibility. And we're trying to make sure that if you are legally entitled to have that flexibility, then you can use it. So some of the factors here that we can talk about are where if you are a injector at a clinic and the structure and you're trading as a company and your agreement with this clinic is, is that we pay you per hour mm -hmm. and we're happy to pay you via your company, but we just pay you per hour, then you will most certainly be captured under personal services income rules because they are paying you for your time. There's a fixed number of hours that they pay you for and they you can't substitute someone else in if you wanted to. You can't just say, well, I don't feel like coming in today. I'm going to send, you know, Bob. Whereas like <laughs> if I hire the plumber and I say, hey, come fix my toilet, um, you know, I might like this particular plumber, but he might be busy. He goes, hey, I'm going to send my offsider to come fix your toilet. The toilet's fixed and I pay for the service. And that's basically it. And that, that plumber is actually running um, a, a legitimate business there, which is not captured by personal services income because, and, and this is what leads into some other examples for your um, injectors and things like that, that if let's say, um, you deal with the like the person who receives the injection directly. So if you're if you're invoicing the end user customer, or if your arrangement is potentially that you get paid on based on the number of units of injection, like, that a, that like a commission type structure. Yeah, yeah. a commission type structure. But yeah. that's that's part of it. There's a few there's a few other um, factors that come into play as sure. well, and. Um, some of the things, if we just run through them pretty quickly and then we can go and, and deal with some more in detail. Um, there's a results test. A results test in simple terms just means that if there's a mistake that's made, then you have to fix it free of charge. So if I'm getting paid per hour and I make a mistake, you know, my, I still get paid the next hour to fix that. Whereas if let's say I get the plumber to come fix my toilet and he says, Hey, it's fixed. And then I go to flush it and it doesn't flush. He's coming back to fix that. And I'm not paying him again because yeah. I said, I want the toilet fixed. That is the result that I was looking for. Yes. Okay. Um, so that's, um, a distinction there. There's also, um, an 80, 20 rule. And what that's referencing there is that, uh, you, where do you get your income from and does more than 80% um, of your income come from one source? So if let's say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing injections and I have five different clinics that I work for, mm -hmm. then even though I'm, you know, I might be getting paid, um, you know, by like an hour or something like that, 
um, because I, like I'm, I have five different customers who I'm dealing with, then I can you know, be deemed to not be captured by this legislation. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. it does, yeah. So what does the 80 and the 20 stand for? 80% of your income Come coming from. from one source. Right, okay. So if more than 80% comes from one source, then that can be, be a reason for you to be captured by the legislation. Yeah. And then also if... Um, uh, with the results test that I mentioned, there's other things as well. So like, let's say I'm a delivery driver and um, I deliver for Coca-Cola. Yeah. But, you know, obviously Coca-Cola is a massive client. I'm, dis I'm distributing their drinks all over the country and I have, um, you know, a fleet of trucks that's worth millions of dollars. There's also like asset tests too where they say, okay, well, clearly you are running a business because, you know, you have like, 20 trucks, you know, driving all over the country. So even yeah. though you just have your one client and you're doing deliveries, that's fine. Yeah. So. Okay. Yep. Okay. Is there anything else we need to cover on PSI? Uh, well, yeah. at, at a very at a one hundred and one level, I think no? that it's just important that people understand that these rules are there and in place, and um, that it's important to be getting um, the right advice there. Um, there's also um, other things like I mentioned to you about, um, like whether you're getting paid per hour or whether you're getting paid on the commission. Yeah. But especially if you're supplying the product as well, some injectors. Yeah. If you bring your own, you bring your own fillers and, and toxins, then yeah. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Because then what you're, even though you're being paid to be the injector, you're effectively the one who's selling the, the product to the customer. So yeah. if your clinic doesn't supply you with that stuff and you're actually the one who brings it in, yeah. then that can be another determining factor for you yeah. as well. And I guess this just further highlights why it's so important to really understand the process, meet with your accountant and actually then work from the outcome you're trying to achieve backwards. So to make sure that you set these things up all right from the beginning. Yeah, it's very hard to unscramble the egg later. It's expensive, time-consuming, and you probably want to pull <laughs> your hair out. So it's true, and and like I said at the very beginning of the the podcast, um, if you meet up in advance of the end of the financial year yeah. or before you've already like filed documents that you know put yourself into a bad position, you have an opportunity to fix it. I'm like that emergency room doctor yeah. for you, where we can try yeah. to restart you yeah. know your life or reshape it. Whereas once things are finished then yeah, you know, it's trying it, to unscramble the egg. terminal yeah that's yeah. it it's, 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 <laughs> yeah. it becomes very difficult yeah and i guess it's important to sort of work with an account i mean obviously if you're an accountant you have a, like a, a certain level of qualification and understanding but there are as you said there are nuances to every industry so it is ideal to try and work with someone that has had experience in your particular field particularly medical field yes yeah. and and even within the medical field particularly um in the aesthetic um, yeah. field with people who do the injections a lot yeah. because um whether you deal with gps regularly or, or just doctors who work in the hospital and get paid a salary, you may not be across all the nuances of the actual business that happens and the the way it's contracted. Yeah, from the dynamics the, and, the, yeah. and the sort of nuances, yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, in terms of deductions, um, like I guess specifically for medical professionals, like how can our listeners like legally maximize their opportunities? Because we're always this talking about This is such a common stuff. question. Yeah. I you don't want to pay tax, Go on any me. Facebook <laughs> forum with doctors or nurses yeah. and they're like, you know, I had a haircut, but it was for work. Can, can I claim that and, and so on? <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, run us through the, the common ones. Definitely a very timely topic to be coming <laughs> up with. And everyone loves to hear the word deductions. And people always say, oh, yeah, I write that off through my business. Uh, <laughs> Reminds me of a Seinfeld episode. Yeah, they just Dodgy. write it off. Yeah, That's it, exactly. <laughs> so, 
let's talk about a couple of things here with deductions. The first thing is, is that um, when you incur this expense, um, even if it is eligible to be claimed as a tax deduction, you are not getting back a hundred cents on the dollar for that expense. Mm -hmm. And that's a really important point to mention to people because some things, oh yeah, I write it off through my business. It's like, well, okay, if you go and spend that hundred dollars expense through your company, um, what is it really getting you? And what it is in a company situation, it's saving you 27 and a half cents for, um, for having spent that amount. So if let's say you don't really need to spend that, you're better off to go um, and not expend that, that money and then pay the tax and still have, you know, uh, 72 and a half cents there. Um, so you're better off that way. There's no, like I can claim the paper from my photocopier as a tax deduction, but I'm not going to buy pallets of it if I don't need, because I'd rather just keep that money, pay some tax and then have the rest of it to do with as I see fit. Yeah. So let's, let's just be clear there. Yeah. First don't of spend all. money unless you need to. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or there's a couple of other things as well. And I guess like if you don't need to is a, um, a pretty good coverall for everything else. But um, the first thing is if you're an employee situation, and I know a lot of your listeners are employees, the, the best thing is can you get your employer to pay for it on your behalf? Mm -hmm. Because if they pay for it on your behalf um, out of their pocket, then you're getting back 100 cents on the dollar. And you'd much rather get a hundred cents on the dollar from your employee than get twenty-seven and a half cents, you know, or yeah. maybe even forty cents from the government. So that's where like companies will do like packages where you get like a car allowance or you get like a salary sacrifice. Not even so much okay. like that. Like okay. that, that's 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 certainly things yeah. that they get done. But just think about it like this: let's say your APRA registration. Yep. Um, some companies say we'll pay that for you. Other ones say, no, you have to pay that for yourself. But if your company is willing to pay for that on your behalf for you yeah. out of their pocket, um, then you you basically... You're like 70 cents ahead the dollar. $700 paid and no tax. Oh, sorry, no, you nothing back, had, but you've not spent $700. That's right. So yeah. you're well and truly in front because if you have to spend that $700, all, all you're going to get back is about you know, maybe $200 or something like yeah. that. You're still 500 out of pocket, whereas this way you're in front. Um, and then the other thing that you can sort of look for from there in terms of these deductions is, does it make your life better? And so we talk about like, let's say um, you have to travel around between multiple clinics um, to do your job. Do you want to have a nicer car to do it? Can you do that same job? Like, like no, no offense to let's say a Toyota Corolla, but you know, <laughs> it, you can you can drive around between the clinics in Toyota Corolla, or you can drive around in an AMG Mercedes, and you'll still get there. You'll pretty much get there on time and safely. But it's do you feel more comfortable? in the Mercedes AMG? And if the answer is yes, and your business has the profitability and the margin to be able to do that, you may feel that that's a deduction which you want to have through your company. Mm -hmm. And so that's probably the other reason um, why I'd say to someone you might want to spend the money there is because you're actually getting this personal benefit and enjoyment out of driving a nicer car and you get to claim the deduction for it there. Um, other things as well, when you start to talk about medical professionals is you guys have a lot of, um, uh, continuing education requirements and medical conferences as we do too for accountants. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you may find that there's a conference that 
is you know relevant to your particular current role, which might be in Byron Bay and or Monaco or Monaco <laughs> if there wasn't coronavirus yes. travel restrictions. <laughs> so <laughs> we were talking about that before the shit hit the fan. Where we going? To, yeah, you know, that Incas over in Monaco and then Paris as yeah. well. Yeah. And so you may find that you sort of end up getting a little bit of a vacation or get to experience a different culture um, uh, and still able to claim a tax deduction for the cost of going to these conferences as well. Um, I just want to, like, obviously, again, uh, you probably have heard me throughout the whole podcast. Um, you obviously can't take the piss out of this and, <laughs> um, and you need to be reasonable. And, re and there are certain rules from the tax office about how long, you know, prior to and post the conference is acceptable travel time for going overseas and things yeah. like that. And if you go outside these things, so if you go to, let's say, Paris for a medical conference, but you stay there for three weeks and the conference was for, let's say, only like a few days, <laughs> there's going to have to be an apportionment of that yeah. between your personal expense and, and private but uh, sorry, in business, but um, yeah. assuming that let's say you just went to Paris for a week and the conference was four days, then the tax office understands that it's not reasonable to expect you to fly in the morning of the conference and fly out the day it finishes. Yeah. They get that. Yeah. So. yeah, but maybe a sensible approach would be, look, yeah, I'm, I'm going overseas for a conference. It goes for a week. I want to spend three weeks overseas. Maybe I claim 30% of that expense as a tax deduction because that was the legitimate amount of time that I spent on business there. That, assuming assuming yeah. that the cost of the entire three weeks was even, yes. then yes, that would be yeah. a fair way to do it. Um, so I guess the moral of the story is don't be greedy. Otherwise, you'll get you'll get you'll get caught. Can't play the it's, system. I think really the the main the moral of the story is is that it's important to get good advice yep. and to speak to your accountant or your tax advisor prior to um, you know making these plans and incurring the expense. So that way you can structure it in a way which um, meets the rules and helps you achieve your outcomes at the same time. So just to be clear on that example of say going to Paris, that would include the fee of the course, the flight the hotel, any food associated meals, with eating, yeah. um, transport to and from, transport, yeah, all that kind of stuff. All that sort of stuff. And it's very important to keep your receipts and especially when you start going overseas and things like that to, um, to make sure that you have the conversions on the expenses done mm -hmm. right. So it's probably best just to take the hit and put it on your card so that way yeah. you can see what it converts back to in Australian yeah. dollars rather than... Um, That's actually a good point. I, I've been in this situation where, you know, I've been in Dubai mm -hmm. and then when I'm actually doing the tax return, I'm using the conversion rate on the, on the day of the tax return, not the day I was in Dubai. So what's the recommendation there? Cause it can vary wildly. Oh, it's, there's not even a recommendation. This is the, ex it needs to be converted at the call at the at price the of the day when you incurred the expense. Okay. Right. So, and that's why I'm saying to you, if you use your credit card, it's converted right then. Yes. And yes, I know they charge you fees and everything else, but you can claim the international transaction fee yep. as a deduction. And then that way it's done for you. The maths is much simpler on, on how to convert it. So mm -hmm. what about uh, some of these sort of, um, more, I don't want to put this wrongly, but there are some grayer areas where some industries can claim certain things and some can't. Um, but in terms of injectors, outside of education, travel, car, what about things like clothing? If you have to wear a uniform or you've got to present yourself in a certain way, is that gray or is that legit? It's 
it's black there's black and white rules about that <laughs> and what happens is for clothing uh unless it is an actual uniform so let's say they say we need you in black pants and a black shirt mm -hmm. um and you go and buy you know versace you know black jeans and black shirt uh that's not deductible and the okay. reason for that is is that you could wear that same outfit um out you know to the pub later on or something else and um it's just there's it's not even a question it's not claimable okay so um there's i'll, I'll go through for uniforms what is claimable and what's not yep. claimable um since he asked the question so specific uniform is where it will be branded like i like your beautiful shirt there that says inside a, a, a aesthetics you know <laughs> so um that if you wear that out um to the pub afterwards or something like that it's not it's probably not um you know type of clothing that's just for your general thing you could say that is a uniform t-shirt yeah. there yeah okay um and or if it's, let's say, protective. So if you have, if let's say you work as a traffic controller and you have the bright orange shirt, even though it might not say, you know, Jake's traffic control, you're not like, unless, you know, you it's have a very fashion strange fashion statement. sense, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. then that's not, uh, and, and the same thing, let's say with like, you know, those chef pants or something mm -hmm. along those lines, then not claimable. However, with scrubs, if the scrubs, if you have to wear scrubs, even though they might not be um, embroidered or something like that, that would be an occupation-specific type okay. of clothing. Yeah. You can also then start to say that that's a bit more protective too, because that's one of the other yeah. um, features for it. So if let's say you just, you know, you were an electrician and you had, you know, rubber coated sort of like plain black pants, even though they don't say Jake's electric on them, but those are specific, specifically designed to protect you from yeah. getting electrocuted so, so basically if you go out in public wearing what you'd wear for work and you were deemed to look ridiculous it's tax deductible a lot of people you know post covid and post lockdown yeah. all opening up they are thinking about getting scrubs or something for work that is you know can be soiled or yeah. or, or infected whatever yeah. and then taken off yeah. at, at home mm. but they didn't necessarily want to make that investment if it's not going to be deductible. And and that's why I've, I feel like I've been at pains to sort of yeah. um, explain some of the nuances yeah, there. Course. And again, if you're unsure and, you know, in, in a podcast like this, we can't cover everything. So yeah. it's best just to ask the question, but just from a general rule of thumb, um, it's going to need to be either occupation specific, it's going to need to be protective or it's going to need to be branded as a uniform Work. in order for you to be able to claim that. And things like scrubs would definitely fit in. And things that you may not have thought of would be like non-slip shoes. So you might have a pair of, let's say, um, Nike, you know, Nike or Converse <laughs> you know, type of shoes that you're, you're wearing around the hospital um, or your clinic. And if, if, you, know, they could, you could just as well wear those to go out on the street. However, uh, you are entitled to claim for a non-slip footwear you know, okay. in that environment. Mm. So. so do you have any examples of, say, medical professionals that you've sort of looked after or they've come to you and they haven't sort of set things up right from the beginning? Like what, what can that look like if they don't get it right from, from the beginning? Like <laughs> how bad does it get? <laughs> how much time do we have yeah, to talk like about probably, these examples? Probably like five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I think probably the the one that pops most to mind about um medical professionals who haven't received um the best advice for their particular situation is an example of um 
an inject an injector doctor. Um, <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. Who um, who was advised by their tax accountant that they were captured under the PSI rules and. Um, were therefore unable to access um, certain deductions that they um, would have otherwise felt that they should be able to claim. And not just that, but were not able to trade under um, particular structures because they fit into that personal services income right. rules. And um, what that's done for this particular client over the years is it's cost them a lot of money and missed opportunities in terms of um, primarily, you know, deductions, but also um, it's left them at risk because they've had to end up trading as a sole trader mm. for quite an extended period of time. Yeah. And whereas otherwise, and, and even like in coronavirus times, like now you don't know what's coming around the curve and the government has had put out this cash flow boost for employers where basically they could get up to $100,000 in pay-as-you-go withholding credits waived. Now, as a sole trader, you don't get that. But if you were operating as a company and employed yourself, you could most certainly get that. Mm, right. So, uh, and, and the base tax rate is quite different as well, isn't it? Oh, 100%. And this is the whole thing. As a sole trader, all your profits are taxed um, at your personal income tax rate. Whereas when you have a company, you have the ability to retain some profits in that business, which then get taxed at 27.5%. Um, then as a trust, you have the ability to go and distribute those profits to um, anyone who is an eligible beneficiary. And that may happen to have, you know, a benefit of a tax implication as well there. Again, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure that's not the primary objective of giving to them. But when you have it as a sole trader set up, you don't even have the ability to make that distribution. Yeah. And that will cause a lot of... Um, a lot of challenges for you um, down the road. And um, I think it also just means like lost income as well um, mm -hmm. as, as the taxpayer. And uh, that's, and again, you know, you mentioned this a few times, it's really important just to have someone who understands your situation um, and, and then also knows how to apply the rules to that situation too. So yep. you need to have the combination of both someone who understands the tax rules, someone who also understands your particular circumstances, and then can make the two of them work together best. Sounds awesome. Well, that's a lot of information. Uh, we've been talking for nearly an hour and a half. We've, we've gone away over time, but that's great because I think that um, there's a lot of people out there that could really really um, benefit from this information. But um, obviously, we've only captured a really small part of all the topics and sort of nuances we could have gone into. So, I mean, anyone listening out there that you know has an accountant and maybe thinks that they should be looking for some maybe a second opinion or people that are looking to get into the industry and set things up from right, right from the beginning, um, if they want to get in touch with you, Jack, how can they do that? The easiest way to get in touch with us would be to visit our website, yep. www.youngfinancial.com.au. Mm -hmm. um, you can send us an email via um, our website there. Um, additionally, if you do mention that um, you've heard us um, or you've heard me on, um, on the Inside Aesthetics podcast, um, we'll have some special offers in terms of um, Ooh, being able to offer you um, reduction in initial contracts consultation fees yep. and um, I think that you'll be able to not only benefit from getting 
good quality tax advice that's tailored to your specific industry, but also um, save a little bit of money on the um, on the startup of that as well. Okay. Thank awesome. you, mate. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so and much for having me on info. your podcast. And, Sorry, I took uh, you down some chat. roads that you didn't want to go down. <laughs> he <laughs> does totally that. Fine. He's sneaky. <laughs> it's totally fine. It's always good to um, to be able to chat to you guys and and hear what's on your mind and what's relevant to your listeners. Thank awesome. you, mate. Thanks, Jack. Thank you. Thanks, mate. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.